Due to the graphic nature of the crimes committed at this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. The afternoon sun finds its way through a small peephole in the wood. Looking out, you watch as the children follow their mother down the street toward the church, their homemade pageant costumes dragging just a little in the dirt. You carry a tool with you from the barn to the backyard. You pass the cows, the horses, the chickens. No one sees you enter. No one will see you leave. You climb the stairs and pass into an unfinished space, the attic in the two-story house. You light a cigarette. This is the place to watch and wait. When darkness falls, you see the family come up the street. The boys fall asleep first, snoring loudly. The girl next, taking leave of her guests after tucking them in downstairs. The husband kisses the wife goodnight as she falls asleep on his chest. You watch from the dark, waiting. You see his eyes droop, his breath slow. The house is yours now. Ours. So many little heads on pillows. So many children that could wake and scream as you do your monstrous work. But they won't. They are outnumbered. You are everywhere and nowhere. You are older than God and twice as cruel. You are Legion. And you will have your tribute. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a tour of the Velisca Axe Murder House, the site of a crime so heinous that it knocked the sinking of the Titanic from the headlines in 1912. To this day, it's haunted. If you can't get enough haunted places, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on your favorite podcast directory, as well as on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. The Velisca Axe Murder House is home to one of the most grisly home invasions in American history. Six children and two adults were found murdered in their beds on the morning of June 10th, 1912. The evidence suggests that the killer hid in the family's barn, then snuck into their unlocked house while they were at church, watching and waiting until they went to bed. The murderer 
or murderers, went about their dark business without raising any alarm outside the house. The mutilated corpses were discovered the next morning by a relative. Unrecognizable, thanks to the many, many blows of the family's own axe. There were numerous suspects, but no convictions. Today, the house offers overnight stays for the adventurous and sunlit group tours for the faint of heart. The pretty white frame house, originally built in 1868, has been restored to its 1912 condition. Psychics and paranormal investigators who visit the house say they found cold spots, the presence of spirits, demons, and even a portal to a dark dimension. It was the silence of the space that caught their neighbor's attention. Usually by now, Joe Moore would have cared for the horses, then headed off to his store. The children would be bickering loudly about whose turn it was to empty the chamber pot and feed the chickens. Sarah Moore would be out in the yard, managing, well, everything. But the house was dark. Curtains pulled, windows covered even when there were no shades to be found. A neighbor, Mary Peckham, knocked on the Moores' door around 8 a.m. There was no response. Moving beyond her Iowan propriety, she grasped the knob and pulled. It was locked. Mary couldn't remember a time when the Moores' door had been locked. There was no crime in Velisca. They had one round and very well-intentioned policeman, but he'd never been called on to do more than lead a stubborn cow out of the road. She called the clerk at Joe's store, who called Joe's brother Ross, who had a skeleton key. With only a match for light, he crossed the shrouded parlor and headed toward the kitchen to climb the stairs. His sister-in-law had hand-painted flowers on the side of the staircase, and the sight of them calmed his sudden nerves. This was a happy home. He saw the fabric out of the corner of his eye, somewhere beyond the threshold of the adjoining room, rumpled white with stains of wine-dark red pulled over a small, still form. Ross wasn't expecting the parlor bedroom to be occupied. The children generally didn't have guests on school nights. It was two small, broken shapes beneath the blood-soaked cloth. A limp child's hand poked out from below. He didn't breathe. He didn't think. Couldn't dare to hope or dream to comprehend. On top of it all, in the depths of the dark, he heard a soft whisper and laugh in his ear, hot and wet, like a beast. The buzzing of a thousand flies and the growl of Chimera. Somehow, some way, he knew that nothing had survived this house, but something remained. He couldn't help his brother-in-law now, nor his sister-in-law, his nieces, and nephews. Those still little shapes below all that red 
they were gone. But something was still breathing. His candle flickered. Ross Moore ran. He was the first to run from this Iowa farm turned slaughterhouse. He would not be the last. Felisca had no detectives. Coroner's inquests were informal and town meeting-like. The forensic science and methodical investigations that organizations like the FBI would later be known for were almost a decade away. By the time the detectives from the other side of the county were brought in to examine the crime scene, hundreds of the Moore's curious neighbors had traipsed through the house, gawking at the horror within. Eight dead, including six children between the ages of five and 12. Faces mangled by the axe from their very own woodpile, murdered in their beds. Noting a defensive wound on her arm, detectives surmised that only one victim woke during the attack, 12-year-old Lena Stillinger. The Moore's oldest daughter had invited Lena and her eight-year-old sister, Ina, to stay with them after the church's Children's Day pageant on the night of June 9th. Though Velisca was very proud of their electric street lamps, they were currently out of service due to a dispute with the power company. The town was less than two square miles wide, but Lena and Ina didn't want to walk from the church to their grandmother's house in the dark. Joe Moore, the family patriarch, had called the Stillinger house to let them know that Lena and Ina were interested in staying the night with them. The girl's 14-year-old sister, Blanche, said that would be fine. The Moores were good people, and her sisters wouldn't have to brave the dark alone. Little did they know. Velisca held a funeral in the town square on June 12, 1912. Two days had passed since the murders. Almost three times the town's population arrived to mourn. 300 journalists reported on the scene. Two days after the funeral, Lena and Ina's mother gave birth to a stillborn. Less than six months later, the Stillinger house burned down. If it wasn't a curse, it sure felt like one. The weeks-long parade of visitors through the Moore House began before any sort of justice could be sought, and no justice was ever found. The crimes remain unsolved to this day. Velisca lies quiet, a little farm town whose children always seem to move away. In 2002, after 80 years of rotating private ownership, the Moore House was restored to its original state at the time of the murders. Though their visitors have changed, the spectral hosts have only become more active with time. Psychics say that Sarah Moore weighs in on the new owner's decorating choices. If you manage to sleep in the house, the children will prick your toes. Young visitors to 508 East 2nd Street have been drawn to the back bedroom. Children have been seen playing games with thin air, 
The bedroom closet closes on its own, always ready for a game of hide-and-seek. It seems the children aren't quite ready for bedtime, and who could blame them? Something darker lives in the house, hunting from room to room. Silent, but for its laugh, its cagey answers to investigators' questions, its quiet whispers in lone visitors' ears. In the name of God, a paranormal investigator intones, I command you to tell us your name. Legion, it replies. The first mention of Legion appears in the New Testament, when Jesus interrogates a man who has been behaving strangely in his small lakeside village in Judea. Though the townsfolk tried to bind him for his own safety, the man repeatedly shattered his chains and ran off to hide in the tombs and on the outskirts of the settlement, muttering curses and spells and languages he'd never understood. According to the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus came upon him, the man immediately began to whimper. In God's name, don't torture me, he pleaded. Jesus asked the man his name. My name is Legion. The man replied in voices that were not his own. Legion, for we are many. Jesus commands the demons to leave the man. Frightened, they beg him to let them possess the nearby pigs instead, fleeing the poor wretch in a swirling vortex of dark ash that fills the swine's nostrils. The animals scream with the darkness within. Something savage and ancient and hateful. They face down the son of their adversary, dark eyes, cold and wet. But Jesus is unafraid. The creatures scream again and run, the whole herd thundering down the bank and into the dark, cold water. The screaming continues, but they do not struggle, almost human eyes holding Jesus' gaze as their weight sank into the darkness. This is ours, they say. They are ours. You can't save them all. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to our story. Catholic doctrine tells us that to know a demon's name gives you power over it. This makes Legion's answer an evasion. When we are we, you cannot know us. We are faceless, a sea of darkness you dare not breach. You are outnumbered. Demonic possession is addressed in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But the concept is much, much older. It's said that you must invite a demon in. But there are other ways. Many ancient theatrical traditions describe the performance as a kind of possession. It couldn't be that the children's church play invited a darkness into their home. The world is not that cruel. But investigators believe that something was invited in. Someone sat at the children's play, dreaming of murder. 
During the Velisca investigation, one suspect stepped forward with a shocking confession. Presbyterian Reverend George Kelly confessed to a journalist in disguise. Quote, I was in the grip of something I did not understand, and I felt God wanted me to slay utterly. And I did not know where I was going or where I was. I got down near the end of the street and saw a shadow on the side of the house going from the back to the front, and God told me to follow that shadow. Kelly had been invited to the town to participate in the church's Children's Day proceedings. He toured the crime scene along with the other onlookers in Velisca. Despite this, his confession didn't match the details of the crime, as ascertained by the coroner. After months of detainment, and finally getting a confession, police were forced to let the strange little preacher go. Maybe something twisted the story in his mind, offering just enough truth to make his statement plausible before closer examination, leaving the police tripping over themselves yet again. Maybe it wasn't Kelly at all. But something did change that night. Between the murder of the father, Josiah, and the others, the killer changed their method of execution. Investigators puzzle over it to this day. Josiah Moore's death was the most outwardly violent. The blade of the axe swung through his skull so hard that pieces of his head ended up on the floor. A shoe near the foot of the bed filled with blood. And yet, Sarah didn't wake. All four of the Moore children didn't wake. The Stillinger girls didn't hear the danger on the stairs. Eight people makes a very full house, and the ability of the murderer to go from room to room in a creaky farmhouse and acting undetected slaughter is odd, to say the least. It's possible that the killer only came to execute Josiah. Some business gone bad that motivated the killer to lie in wait as Josiah slept. Josiah Moore was the only member of his family who was struck with the sharp edge of the axe blade. All the others were hit with the blunt end, ending their ability to awake and alert their loved ones in one swift movement. It's not clear if this was mercy or efficiency. Blades stick. Flesh squelches as you pull the sharp edge away. After the killer had ensured that the Moore family was dead, he revisited each body, bludgeoning them over and over again. Josiah's eye spilled onto the floor. The killer knocked over the shoe filled with blood as he raised his axe so high it left impressions in the ceiling. Was this simply an act of senseless violence? If so, why the switch from blade to blunt? How capable, how lucky does a murderer have to be to avoid the squeak of a floorboard on a quiet Iowa night? To have found the one house where children sleep soundly, where there's no fear of things that go bump in the night. Is it possible the killer's quest for Josiah's blood invited in the darkness and the stain of murder kept it in place? 
Or was something darker helping from the start? As his family tours the Velisca Axe murder house, Darren falls behind. This was just supposed to be some creepy fun for his kids, but something's keeping him in the attic. Darren's eyes are open, but he's far away. The attic seems longer than he remembers. He turns, and the Moore's bed looms in the light of the gas lamp. No, it's day. His family's in the next room. His kids playing that stupid game on his phone. Darren can hear the annoyed tour guide from here. His son shoves his sister near the toys, and she shrieks, running away and down the staircase. He should join them, tell them what's what. That voice in his ear, it's familiar. His mother, his father, his lover, his best friend. How easy it would be, it whispers in his ear, to let go. There is a cold spot near the door, a reminder of the parents checking in on their children. Sleeping next to the staircase allowed the Moors the impression that should any danger befall them, it would be caught by Josiah before the children ever encountered it. They never imagined danger would come from between the two rooms. Darren stands under the sharp, unfinished eaves of the attic, enjoying the same view of the bedroom that the killer enjoyed. Enjoyed? No, that's the wrong word. In the back corner of the room, he catches a glint of metal shining in the moonlight. He wants to speak. He wants to run, but no longer feels in control of where his legs take him. He stays rooted to the ground. Don't be afraid, it whispers. His feet strain against an invisible barrier. He thinks how lucky it was that most of the victims never had to face their own death. His eyes go back to the shining metal. Touch it. The voice is close to his ear, but he's still alone. The grip on his legs relaxes. Compelled by some unexplainable force, he takes a step forward, then another. The metal is his beacon. Slowly, he makes it to his prize. It's a large nail, some forgotten piece of renovation. His fingers slide across its smooth surface. The point is so enticingly sharp. He picks it up. The metal is cool against his sweaty hands. Go on, the voice whispers. He scores his skin with the nail. More, it purrs. He plunges the nail into his stomach. Numerous people have claimed to hear Legion calling to them. Perhaps they're looking for a new host to carry on their work. A house stained in blood is only useful when there are more people in it. The large paranormal community that makes up the visitorship to the house today often expects to tangle with the forces of evil. But there are those who are not so lucky. 
So far, there's been at least two cases of men attempting to injure themselves while in the house. They didn't have an explanation for their behavior, outside of a whisper from the void that directed their actions, perhaps hoping to begin the chopping again. As you might expect, overnight stays are available for a very reasonable fee. The light of dusk casts shadowy spiderwebs near the scalloped edges at the top of the porch. Your backpack is filled to the brim with ghost hunting supplies and trail snacks. A sleeping bag is strapped to the bottom. It seems silly to load up so much when you're only going 10 feet from your car to the front door. But something feels distant about the house, like you need to be ready. You head through the screen doorway. The air is musty with a smell of old age. You've read accounts from other investigators and know that the pain of the space is said to hang over all who visit. Your shoulders droop with this imagined weight. The peach of the walls catches you off guard. It seems too bright too cheery for a space that whispers sadness in your ear. A family portrait decorates the walls. They look so alert, so alive. Their eyes watch you as you move. This is their space. No, his space. Who he could be, you aren't sure. But that primal sense of danger tells you that he is here waiting for nightfall. A cast iron stove sits in the corner. A piano rests against the far wall. Your ears strain and hear the faintest tinkling of the keys. It's easy to imagine the family gathering here after church, singing another song or two, and finishing their milk and cookies before heading up to bed. Or, in the case of the Stillinger girls, heading to their bedroom just beyond the parlor. You move through the parlor and into the downstairs bedroom, the locus of the darkest part of that dark, dark night. A deep red curtain casts a crimson glow on the floor in the dying light. The clock is stopped, just as it was on the night of the murders. The silence sits heavily. The axe was found partially wiped clean against this wall. You place your backpack down and untether your sleeping bag. This will be your room for the night. For a curious moment, you're tempted to sleep in one of the beds. You take a step toward it, but then you remember. The young girls who slept there never woke up. There's a staircase leading up to the second floor. The boards are well-worn and bend beneath your feet. For a moment, you think they might cave in, the darkness of the house dragging you down. It's easy to picture the killer, hands gripping the axe, blood dripping to the floor as he steps quietly down the stairs so as not to wake the two below. At the top of the landing is Josiah and Sarah Moore's bed. Renovations have smoothed over the divots in the ceiling, but your hand reaches up to touch the spot where the axe chopped into the roof 
as the blunt end was forced through the skulls of the victims. Deep, ingrained grooves from the blade as the killer broke through the bones of their faces. The cuts may be gone, but something else lingers. The sun is set, and the shadows grow in dark pools. You use the dim blue light of your phone's flashlight to guide you. A sign helpfully reminds you that the parents died here. You remember the somber eyes from the family portrait downstairs. It's tiring to contemplate. All this death. It feels so easy to just be still. The room grows colder. The caw of a crow outside interrupts your stupor. It seems so much darker. What time is it? Phone's dead, of course. The normally quiet click of your flashlight resounds around the room, breaking this stilting silence. You leave the space behind, not yet ready to visit the attic where the killer sat in wait. The first thing you see is the toys. Wooden and cloth playthings in gently used condition. They're put away neatly. You step toward them and enter the children's room. Like their parents' room, the wallpaper is cracked and chipped. Moisture has accumulated and left patches of discoloration. The blood was hard to make out when the curtains were closed. Two of the boys were found in the same bed. Both of their heads bashed in with the blunt handle of the axe. A book and teddy bear were draped across another bed. The covers pulled up to the pillows as they were on the day the bodies were found. On the last bed sits a doll. Its head rests gently on the pillow, a stand-in for one of the children. Its vacant eyes pierce through you. Creative, you think. All the same, it makes for a good video. You take out your camera. Reporting from the Velisca Axe Murder House, you say, panning to the right. Not the biggest fan of my roommate. You swing the camera around to the doll. Why do the eyes seem to follow you? No, that's silly. That's what the owners of the place want you to think. Get your money's worth of frights. You hear a giggle near your ear. Something pushes at the soles of your boots. You shine your light on the ground. There's nothing there. Once again, there are grooves in the ceiling from the blade of the axe. There's the attic just beyond, but you stay in the room, taking things in. You're so tired, so very, very tired, and angry, honestly. It's insulting. This doll, the macabre nature of it all. What's the point? What's the point of any of it? We all die. Does it really matter where or how? In the morning, you pack up your bag and leave, locking the door behind you. You're late getting on the road. They said to leave the house as you found it, and you struggle to remember how you found it. Beds made. Mirrors covered, white bowl on the kitchen table. It had taken time to wash it, to make it pristine again. 
all that red. No one tells you that blood smells the way it tastes in small doses. Metallic, warm, and cold all at once. How it glimmers in the gaslight. How it flies when you strike them just right. Wasn't your friend supposed to join you? No, no. They did. You just sent them on their way. Our story will continue in a moment, right after the break. And now, back to haunted places. A trip to a haunted house might be an unconventional choice for a college graduation party. But Karen was a senior now. She thought a group of women bidding their childhood farewell in a house that sent children away forever was poetic. Grim, but poetic. They set their belongings down with care, running their fingertips over the display dresses and books. It's too easy to think that a child would come bounding down the steps, even now. But there are no living children with them. And the ones that have been here before them are trapped on another plane of existence, tethered to this space by trauma. One of her friends, Dora, pulls out three antique lanterns from her backpack. A puckish smile spreads over her face, a dangerous look in her eye. The lamps are lit in turn, each one casting shadows along the walls. One shadow seems to move on its own. Karen turns, but there's nothing there. A trick of the dim light. The rental terms said no rituals, but it's not a ritual, it's a game. Karen plays dress up in costume pieces that fit with the house. She wanders around, gown dragging on the floor as her friends try on large hats. How pretty Sarah Moore's must have been. She can almost hear something. A whisper or an echo of the past. Maybe they aren't alone. Something strikes the bottom of her foot and she lifts it into the air. Blood drips down onto the wood floors. Oh, it's just a splinter, she tells herself quietly. She raises the lantern to check for wood, but the half-crescent wound suggests the desperate grasp of fingernails. The lantern shakes in her hands, and she returns to the group. Suddenly, the appeal of exploring the house alone with limited light has gone. The warm comfort of friends will soothe her soul. They sit in a circle on the floor. Their conversation is broken up by little squirms, as though someone were pushing at their sides. A skittering of bony fingers against cotton. Not the most unnerving of touches, but strange. Each shake seems to dissuade whoever or whatever is doing this. Someone suggests that the house may have bugs, but it looks too clean for that. Karen pulls the cloth off the mirror. They know that all the reflective surfaces were covered when the Moors and Stillingers were found. Perhaps the children will give them a clue. 
Or maybe Legion will prowl the space once more. Mimicking the children of the time period, Karen spins around in front of the glass. The furniture goes whizzing by as she moves faster and faster, her head growing light yet heavy. Her foot hits the floor with a resounding thud as she stops in front of the mirror and opens her eyes. Legend says she should see her future spouse, but it's not a human waiting in the looking glass. Well, not a live human, anyway. A man with a broken and distorted face mimics her positioning. He'd be staring right at her if his eye sockets weren't empty. Putrid flesh hangs off his skeletal frame. A wet murmur makes it past his lips, but there are no discernible words. He tries again. A drowned gurgle struggling out of his necrotic lips. But she can't look away. She holds his non-existent gaze. Breath gone. Her heart pounds in her chest so hard it might burst. Then, suddenly, she feels a small hand in hers. She jumps back in horror. Her friends rush forward and crowd around the mirror, hoping to catch sight of whatever vision appeared there. But there's nothing. Not even a reflection of her in the mirror. It's a blank canvas. There was no one near her to hold her hand. Dora goes to grab her camera, and Karen moves back toward the mirror again. Only her own reflection. Bright eyes, smooth glowing skin. She's vivid in contrast to the corpse that just looked back at her. Just a trick, she says to her friends. Hesitantly, Dora steps up to the mirror, clutching her camera like a teddy bear. It's her turn to play the game. Adrenaline pushes her feet to move faster. She spins and spins until she can almost block out the fear of opening her eyes. Spots pop beneath her eyelids, but she refuses to open up and examine the world around her. Her grip on the camera would strangle if it was a living thing. Her feet nearly collide into one another. Then she stops. Her own face looks back at her, and she breathes a sigh of relief. Perhaps there was nothing to fear after all. She turns to reassure her friends when she spots it. Out of the corner of her eye, the primal fuzzy edges that sense motion and threat. In that dark place, she sees it. Something digging into her back. She shivers and shakes, but it won't leave. She gasps, unsure what to say. The floor begins to glow. They've come back to the house that once called to them. Did the girls who met their untimely end practice the same ritual? Did it consider this an invitation rather than the harmless game it was? A darkness grows in the corner of the room, pulling all light into crushing emptiness. Unseen hands grab and push as the front door flies open. 
Out, out, away, away. The girls leave it all behind. The lights, the candles, and their textbooks. They sleep in the car, nervously retrieving their belongings before checkout. Their social media feeds are silent. When Ross Moore entered his brother's house, he knew something was peculiar. The house wasn't just dark. It felt smaller. The air was close, and the light from the match seemed to cower, as if the flame itself feared what it might find. When investigators finally opened all the curtains, they noticed the mirrors first. They were covered with cloth, all of them. The killer had used all the fabric he could find, from clothes to tablecloths. Every scrap covered a reflective surface, or body, hiding their mangled visages. In an endless cascade of puzzles, another raised its ugly head. The creature, the killer, whatever it was, hated faces. It wasn't just his victim's features he seemed to loathe but his own visage, too. Could it have been remorse? Was it some kind of ritual protection against the eyes of those who would interfere? What was he so afraid to see? What would be staring back in the dark, waiting for him, as he had waited for the Moors? A strange light emanates from the floor of the Moors' parlor. It glows against the walls, But there's no light source to explain it. Some investigators believe that this phenomena is a sign that the space itself is a portal, a yawning void open wide so Legion can grow. The mirrors in strange light aren't the only detail that may point to signs of a ritual. Some have claimed the uneaten meal left by the killer is a potential offering to a long-forgotten god. A more benign theory is that the killer simply lost their appetite after staining the house with the pain of its occupants. But both explanations are less than appetizing. A bowl of bloody water left in the kitchen may have an equally practical or unnerving purpose. The family's heavy involvement with the church offered solace and protection. God-fearing people had nothing to fear. In 1912, once the authorities had composed themselves enough to endeavor to identify the Moore's unfortunate house guests, Lena and Ina's names were discovered in the inscriptions of the Bibles they kept next to their pillows. The mystery surrounding the murders and subsequent hauntings has built a thriving community around the house. People gather on forums to discuss different theories and make annual pilgrimages to visit this site of violence. The once booming town of Aliska now depends on this dark journey to the past as their only tourist attraction. Today, people report feelings of hopelessness and existential dread as they move through the space. One guest remarked that there was something about the small child's rocking chair that unnerved her to her core. 
This could simply be a result of the careful restoration of the house, using court documents and articles to place antique furniture in the same spot the Moors had it. But 508 East 2nd Street is filled with spots like that. Activity has been reported throughout. As the Moors and Stillingers discovered, nowhere is safe. And yet, they try. They still try. This was their home, and when it was solely theirs, they loved to share it. Neighbor children, relatives, the bedroom in the parlor was always ready to play host to the people the Moors loved. There's a battle in this house, just as there was a battle in those children's plays. Good and evil fight for control. A guerrilla war of spiritual attrition as they occupy each room. Push gently on each new visitor, begging or commanding them to play for their side. Many of the children in the Moore House have identified themselves to visitors, but the most talkative by far is Lena Stillinger, the greatest sufferer of violence at the killer's hands, the girl who didn't want to walk to her grandmother's home in the dark. I fought. Tell them I fought, all right? I pulled at him, tried to get him away from Ina. My Ina. My little shadow. She was asleep. She didn't suffer. That's what I tell myself. I struggle against his weapon, catch a gold chain in his pocket, a piece of him for a piece of me. He lands the blow. My body is at war with itself. The wound on my arm burns my skin. Goose flesh raises on my legs from the chill of the night air. I shiver helplessly. I hear the rustle of bedclothes as he moves about the room. They cover me, and I know now that there is no help to be found. I am already dead to him. My last sight will be that of my killer. There's nothing to do but wait for the end. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I pray the Lord. I pray. God does not hear me. But you do. I know you do. You'll listen, won't you? You'll stay to play. He'll never find us. Not if we hide well enough. We don't sleep now. He can't get us. They can't get us. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. If you'd like to explore the unsolved murders of the Moors and the Stillingers in more depth, Check out my friends Carter and Wendy's investigation of the Velisca killings in episodes 48 and 49 of Parcast's Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. Don't forget to subscribe to Haunted Places on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, 
or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. See you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Lil DeRitter and Jennifer Richet. I'm Greg Polson.